you are listening to Regrets. Let's share a few. This is episode one. Bicentennial Fuggery. Bad things happen to good people. Being in the right, doing good, minding your own business is no protection against thuggery. Thuggery on a grand scale happened in Australia from 1788 when white settlers arrived. The locals were dispossessed, a single word that doesn't begin to describe that tragedy. Two centuries later, here is a tale from 1988, our bicentennial year for non-Indigenous settlement. And this tale shows that there's still unfinished business. But unlike those who were dispossessed in 1788, these more recent victims of thuggery may still have a voice, may even get justice. Here's what went down. It was dusk on a warm night, and five teenage apprentices, all good friends, because they'd grown up in the same inner, urban, migrant neighbourhood, were just minding their own business in their small local park. That park is just a few kilometres from the State Houses of Parliament. They were sipping from bottles of Coke because they were too young to be drinking beer in public, passing around slices of pizza and using a portable sound system to play their favourite music on tape cassettes because this was just before the CD revolution and many players. It's easy enough to imagine their chat about work friends, sport, music and relationships, as well as their friendly teasing and jostling of each other and their overall sense that life was good, but not for long. A van, unmarked with any signs, bumped across the curb, drove across the grass and stopped next to them. A group of above-average size and build, well-muscled men got out of both sides of the cab and one went round and pulled open the back door. One of the group told the teenagers to leave the pizza and coke where it was and get into the van. Now, we're not talking about Nazi Germany, occupied Europe or occupied Asia, or Chile after Allende, or the Myanmar military dictatorship, or what happens in Tibet, or Russian killers in the Ukraine. We're talking about so-called multicultural Australia, where one way of keeping the peace after two centuries of European takeover is to send a van of thugs, in or out of uniform, to so-called trouble spots in country areas, so that they could beat up those who didn't toe the line with the local coppers. It was called proactive policing. But when there wasn't trouble in a so-called trouble spot, then these thugs got their jollies by beating up wogs, as we called our migrants then, or abos, as they were called then, 
whereas now they're First Nation people. But in both cases, wogs and abos, these were people whose complaints weren't heard by anyone with the inclination or the power to do a damn thing about it. The van drove to the local police station, which wasn't far away. They put the five of them in the cells, but dragged one out to hang him with the electrical cord from the sound system, to hang him from something on the ceiling. They let him down when a uniformed officer unexpectedly opened the door into the cell block. They'd been sprung by someone not naturally in their support group. There were marks on the boys' necks. Mark that proved their crimes. What would have happened if that officer hadn't opened that door? Would it have been another unexpected suicide in custody? But she did open that door, so it was time for them to cover their tracks. Their five youthful victims, all clean skins, were charged with that timeless magical trifecta, unseemly words, assault police, resist arrest. The boys went home. Surprisingly, their families didn't take this lying down. Instead, they took them to the local doctor, who took photographs and made careful notes. The next day, they reported it to police internal affairs, who did nothing for months, and then sent short letters, because we're talking pre-email, that dismissed all their complaints as incapable of verification. Even then, the youths and their families weren't put off. Instead, the five of them came to the independent body responsible for reviewing complaints about police, turning up late one afternoon, after the security grid had been closed. And they rattled that grid until someone came out to find the cause of the ruckus. They told their story again in great detail. It's a story that police internal affairs should have told the independent body when it first got the complaints. That was the law. But internal affairs covered it all up, right from the get-go. That's what mates do. The independent office heard about the unwanted police witness to the hanging in the watch house. They found her, and they talked to her. She confirmed the hanging. But when they wanted to speak to her a second time, she had been suddenly transferred out of the city to some rural area and couldn't be contacted. She was to be kept out of reach for the few weeks necessary to carry through the police grand plan. And what plan is that? Listen now. The independent office summoned the men from the white van for interview. Now, such interviews were always recorded and each person interviewed got a copy of their interview tape 
when all of the interviews had been done. But these coppers came for the interview carrying their own small tape recorder provided by powerful unnamed others. At each one indicated that he would record his interview and then play it to his mates before the next one got interviewed so that they all got the heads up on the questions that were asked and the answers each one would give. Unsurprisingly, they were told to hand in that tape recorder. They told the head investigator that he can fuck off because their police bosses had told them to tell him, get fucked. Got to hand it to them. The thugs were just fists and feet stompers on taxpayer-funded wheels, making their way around the back blocks of the state. But clever, they were not. Eerily reminiscent of Hitler's boys in brown and black. But their handlers were cunning, very cunning, and they had a plan. But at this time there was no properly recorded interview. Instead, the tape on their little machine containing the expletive-laden conversations between the head of the thugs and the head of the independent agency was rushed to an editing suite for some clever but simple cutting and rearranging. That doctored file was given to a willing prime-time radio host with good links to the police. He was happy to get it and happy to play it. By the way, nothing has changed in the decades since. If it comes from the police, you run it. No checks, no issues, no reflection. That's the price of getting more. And besides, it truly sounded on that tape as though the head of that independent body had tipped over the edge. The Polly's all thought so. And how did the police participants sound? Well, they didn't, because their contribution had been edited out to give the best indication of a solo fucking rant. At the time... And maybe it's still this way. Who's to know? A senior police officer was the special messenger between police management and politicians, both the government and the opposition. He carried all the messages between his ears. Most definitely never in writing. The key message to the government the following day was we're not putting up with any independent review of our complaint handling processes. Abolish that office. Get rid of the head of it. Do it now, or we'll run independent candidates in the marginal seats in the election that is just months away. The government didn't hesitate. The pre-election polls were bad news for them. A special law was introduced and rushed through both houses of parliament in one night. The opposition was there to assist that speedy solution. Why? Same deal. 
get on board or face a three-way contest in seats that you need to win. So, there was no more independent investigative office. The official reason was that the head had mental problems. What was the evidence of that? Just that when the police told him to get fucked, and that wasn't on the play the tape, he'd replied that they could get fucked too. Now, there's nothing new in this way of doing business. And thereafter, there's nothing new in kicking people when they're down, because that's always been irresistible to thugs and bullies everywhere. Some police and some politicians can't get enough of it. If you don't believe it, then consider the recent history of reports emanating from the Australian Federal Parliament and even more recent ones from the Parliament Houses in New South Wales and Tasmania. So here's how it worked out in this case in the bicentennial year. The now unemployed head and his partner went on a short let's get away and rework our lives trip was some hours away by plane. On the second night, just after midnight, there was a phone call from the crime reporter of the biggest circulation daily telling him that he'd be charged with criminal offences when he got home. Why? you ask. Did the reporter make that call at that time of night? Simple. If he wanted to stay on the police media gravy train, then, like the radio jock, he had to do as he was told. But how did the police reporter find him? Also simple. The police had an informant who illegally gave out details about departing passengers. The sacked head came home. No charges were laid then or since. But he got back on the last day of the hearing where those five teenagers were defending the charges against them in their local court. Remember that trifecta? Assault police, resist arrest, unseemly words. They were acquitted on all charges. The police department was ordered to pay their legal expenses, a large amount and a very rare event, then and now. But that result got almost no publicity. But nothing further happened with their complaints about the park and watch house incidents. Those complaints that police internal affairs had said were incapable of verification. All of it was pushed under the carpet woven from deception and delay. And that's where it stayed for half a lifetime since. It now needs to see some light and there's no better person to shine that light than listeners to this story. The still unemployed former head 
of the Complaints Review Body, spent some months fruitlessly seeking employment. Then he learned from a reliable source that the Premier's office had phoned all prospective law firm employers and warned them that they could not bid for government contracts if they employed him. Luckily, at a law social function, he was introduced to a senior lawyer, a long-time supporter of the opposition, who offered him a job instantly for the sole reason of putting it up the Premier. The former head and his family were ever so grateful for that job they'd run out of money. All of this is several decades ago, but what now? Those who committed at least aggravated assault, and it might even be attempted murder, are all retired, but likely still living in their own homes on their generous police pensions. They served the state well. But there's no limitation period on charging people for serious crimes in this country. We were happy enough to take action against World War II war criminals decades after that conflict ended. What kind of retirement life do those once-upon-a-time thugs have now? Perhaps their physical jobs gave them arthritis in their hands, arthritis that now gives them constant pain. Perhaps all that state-sanctioned thuggery, along with the occasional well-landed blows that they took from stronger, fitter victims, has led to debilitating mental problems, similar to those suffered by football players who get concussed too often. In any event, it would be good to have them identify who gave the orders to break bones, who guaranteed them protection, and who ensured that each of them had a lifetime get-out-of-jail-free card, because that card needs to be withdrawn. Because no one's ever paid any attention to what happened to those five apprentices. Did they share that experience in the following years and decades with their partners, their children, their workmates? Or was that terrifying one-night experience, like it is for so many soldiers, the stuff that is forever heard but only between one's ears in the repetitive terrors that come in the darkness of the night. Surely those five are all deserving of compensation from the state, as surely as those who suffered sexual abuse in institutions are now being compensated across this country. Maybe 
someone who worked during that bicentennial period in the police or in a politician's office would be prepared by a gnawing conscience to come clean. To go to media or the prosecutor's office. And if you're listening, we can hope. Because if not, if silence reigns, then all that there is by way of vindication is the hope that those who committed those acts and those who endorsed them, if not punished in this life, will be damned in the next. <laughs>